Hey, good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you today. How many of you woke up and still haven't put your heat on in your house? Anybody? We have any long-term... Look at the people are applauding for this. This is good. I'm in your world. Whoever's clapping, no heat yet. No heat. I'm not wearing that as a badge of honor just for another few days. I was instructed a few days ago uh, that we do have to put the heat on sometime soon. So soon is relative, depending on who you talk to, right? I mean, so it all depends. Uh, but it is definitely getting chilly out this morning. It's good to be with you. Fall is definitely here, right? Anyone like fall? Any fall people here this morning? It is definitely my favorite season of the year. There's no question about it. I mean, everything's still kind of turning a little bit cooler at this point. You can put on some warmer clothes. You can have fires in your backyard legally. Um, you can do that. Um, you can have a lot of fun during this time of year. And it's just a nice time. It reminds me that Christmas is coming. So... That's all fun as well. Um, so that's my weather report and my comments on the weather for this morning. Um, glad that you're all with us this morning. Um, I am excited to spend a few, t- a few moments this morning continuing the series in the book of Romans. Um, so if you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn to the book of Romans chapter 1. We are in our third week of this series, Romans chapter 1. If you've been with us for the last few weeks Uh, you know that we have started this series, and it will be an ongoing series for an extended period of time with a few breaks um, as we come across holiday services and special services. Um, But we're going to go through the entire series by going through all 16 chapters of the Book of Romans. Um, Some people have continued to ask me, um, not because they're asking over and over, but I hear different people say, you know, explain to me again why we're going through Romans and why this is so significant. And, and I, I really am excited to talk about that because it is the most theologically rich book in the New Testament. When you're looking at what it means to be a follower of Christ, and if you can, again, for those especially that are new through this, if you were a believer in Jesus Christ during the time of the apostles, the first apostles, When Paul wrote this book, there was no Bible. The Old Testament existed, but to the non-Jewish believers, the Old Testament were considered Jewish scriptures. It didn't have instruction on how to live as a follower of Christ, what it looked like to be um, a follower of Christ. They simply heard the message of Jesus. They put their faith in Christ, and then they began to walk this life out without any real instruction. The very first book that you see in the New Testament is the book of Romans, not in the order, but in the way that they were written. Romans was the first book that was written out of all 27 books in the New Testament. And that's why it's so significant, because there needed to be a foundation of truth that was made evident for everyone moving forward. So if you were looking for an instruction manual or a roadmap, if you will, to say, how am I supposed to navigate this new world? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? This is the book that was written to get you rooted in your faith. And I I love doing this because I think when, we, when I look at my history, when I look at my Christian experience growing up, when I look at what's happening in the world around us, everyone's trying to tell you what being rooted looks like and the foundations they want you to build on are different many times than what the scripture teaches. And as Christians, we can come to church, we can hear a message, we can sing songs, and, and we can build our belief system and our theology off of our opinions and our experiences as opposed to what God's Word says. So while, while we're going through the book of Romans, there will be a great opportunity, many opportunities for you to learn a deeper understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ. We're going to talk about um, what it means to deal with the, with the power of the gospel. We're going to be looking at the power of the gospel for the first large chunk of the, of the scriptures. How powerful is the gospel? We're going to look at God's promise that he continued to send a message of a deliverer from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And then finally, we're going to look at how to live. 
in the last number of chapters of Romans by looking at the practice of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And I love the order that Paul does this because too often we can take time talking about how to live as Christians. But if I'm being really honest, sometimes if I don't have a good understanding or if I don't have a fresh reminder sometimes of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what God has done for me, it is what God has done for me when that, when that really sinks into the heart of my heart the depth of my heart that makes me want to follow him, that makes me desire to follow him. Does that that make sense? People can tell you what to do all day long, but if it's not affecting you in your heart, it just feels like empty actions. And that's why we need to spend time getting into the roots in the beginning and talk about the power of the gospel. In Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, we're going to read 18 through 32. So if you would join me, beginning in verse 18, we're going to read the whole passage together, and then we're going to talk about it. Verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and the birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, The men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, Greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word this morning and we look at a very difficult passage, Lord, I pray that we would see this through your eyes. I pray that we wouldn't just see these words. We wouldn't just identify something in this passage that identifies with our belief or something we are passionate about, but I pray we look at the entire message 
of what you're telling us in this passage and that our hearts would be open to draw closer to you and not to push away. God, I pray for each person listening this morning that they would hear your heart in these words and that, Lord, as they call out to you, you would reveal your love, your care, and your compassion for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are some parts of Scripture that are really easy to speak about. And then there are passages like this. Some passages are comforting. Some are encouraging. There are some that I've, I've gone through when we've, we've done a series when I'm, I've thought, man, this is just going to be exciting to talk about. And it just makes you feel the love of God and you just sense the passion of God and, and you just are encouraged by the words that are there. And then there are passages like this. <laughs> Romans 1, 18 through 32 is not a passage that usually gives people a feel-good type of response. Though it is scripture and it is incredibly important for us to talk about. You see, one of the benefits of going through a series by going through an entire book of the Bible is that you cover everything that the writer actually talks about. Because if the writer wrote it, then we should understand what he's talking about. It's easy when we do topical types of series, and they're not bad, we do them across the year as well, to pick different types of things to talk about. This summer, we picked a bunch of hot topics when we went through our You Ask For It series. Sometimes they're easy to talk through, sometimes they're difficult. But this passage this morning is exceptionally difficult, especially in the context of our current culture. There's a lot here. 18 through 32 are a lot of verses, and they are meaty verses, and you probably have read them or you've heard people talk about them in different ways, and depending on your experience with them, you maybe have been unsettled with them, maybe you've been angry when people quote them, um, or maybe you just disregard them and say, you know, that, that's the way Scripture is, but there's other ways to interpret it. In fact, you can actually do research and find that there are other people and other uh, leaders and churches uh, that believe that these passages mean something different, and they find all all kinds of creative ways to interpret these passages. I don't believe they're accurate, um, but the point is when you come across a part of Scripture that makes you uncomfortable and you don't know what to do with it, you can either ignore it, you can try to make it fit your own mindset or your own worldview, or you can obey it and follow it for what it is. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, but I really want to ask you, because there's things in this passage that may get you upset. If you're here, you might get upset. And if you get upset, don't leave. Uh, if you're listening online and you get upset, don't shut it off. I can promise you it's not worth shutting it off. You want to listen to the whole thing. Because as much as there's heaviness in this, there's also great hope. And I want to talk through that a little bit this morning. Now, instead of trying to go through all of it line by line right now, because your mind might be overwhelmed with the things that we just read, I tried to summarize this in two sentences. What does 18 through 32 actually look like? And what is Paul trying to tell us? And this is what I believe he's trying to say. And then we're going to break it out. I believe, if I can summarize this, what Paul is really saying is this. God patiently gives mankind every opportunity to accept his truth instead of creating our own. If we continue to disregard God's truth, he eventually surrenders by letting us experience the growing consequences of our sin. I'll say that again. God patiently gives mankind every opportunity to accept his truth instead of creating our own. 
If we continue to disregard God's truth, he eventually surrenders by letting us experience the growing consequences of our sin. This morning's message is entitled, When God Surrenders. Now, most people would not really consider God, who is all-powerful, who, if you believe he's all-powerful and almighty, that he would surrender to anything. But there are circumstances in which God does surrender. And we're going to talk about that in this passage. So there's a few things I want to do. I'm going to grab portions of this scripture, and I'm just going to give you some principles this morning that you see in these verses that I think sum up what's happening here and how it applies to us. The first thing we need to talk about, though, and I think this is the most important, is we need to understand the wrath of God. When Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, what does that actually mean? Okay, It means this. It means that God is not angry. It means he grows angry. Okay, And what I mean by that is, let's read that scripture again. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. What do you think of when you hear the word wrath? Now, when I was a little kid, six very powerful words resonated in my mind as I would hide myself in my bedroom and my mom would knock on the door with the door locked and she'd say, wait until your father gets home. Amen. Someone amen that. All right. That's great. Wait until your father gets home. Okay. Not because, you know, I was like scared of my father or anything, but, you know, she needed a little backup sometimes. You know, one parent is okay and it's great when, you know, mom can handle the whole thing, but sometimes it's nice to have dad come alongside. And, you know, my mom was a disciplinarian and my dad was the grounder, you know, so she would, you know, put the discipline in place and he would set the timelines on the groundings. And I knew when dad was coming home, I was going to get in trouble and I would get grounded for something that I, I'm sure I deserved at that case. But that's one definition. And as a little kid, I would define wrath that way. You know, oh, I'm going to get the wrath of, of dad. You know, I'm going to get grounded. What do you think of when you think of the word wrath? What does it look like to you? This week I was reflecting on um, history. I like to study history different times. And I was thinking about uh, December 7th, 1941. And many of you know that date as the date that the Japanese Navy um, invaded Pearl Harbor and attacked Pearl Harbor. When the Japanese Navy attacked Pearl Harbor... Almost 20 naval vessels, U.S. naval vessels were damaged, and over 300 airplanes. Eight of those vessels were battleships. Over 2,400 Americans died, and another 1,000 Americans that were civilians were injured. And what's interesting about the days after the Japanese attack is not so much about how the U.S. responded. We know from history how the U.S. responded, but I'm always mindful of the note that the Japanese admiral, um, his name was Is. Isoroku Yamamoto, who planned the attack on Pearl Harbor, wrote in his diary. And he wrote these words, I fear all we have done is to awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. And as many of us know, the history of what happened, the U.S. entered World War II, and the rest is written in the history books. That is an example of the wrath of a nation upon another nation. Right? Now, it may not apply to us today, but there are other examples of wrath. Uh, maybe today you can think of wrath in terms of just rage. Right? Sometimes people receive the wrath of others just because someone's really angry and really upset about something. Someone does something unimaginable 
You know, there's, there's medical studies that say that, you know, when you get really angry about something to the point of rage, your logic part of your brain, in men especially, shut down. That's why people do things in fits of rage and many times have no recollection of why they did it or that they even did it. Because there's this rage that comes out of them. And, and maybe you've witnessed some of that. Maybe you've been on the road somewhere and, you know, that little quarter-inch piece of glass between you and the person next to you turns them into a raving lunatic because of something you did intentionally or unintentionally, this road rage that comes out. And if you don't drive or if you've not experienced that, um, maybe it's social media rage. That's actually a really big thing right now. You know, the anonymity that happens because you're on a computer in your house and someone's on a computer in their house and they say things to people that are absolutely horrific, and there's this anonymous thing about it. And I think, you know, if some of the times people say things to people that they're going to run into during that week, do they not think that's going to be an awkward conversation when they see them in three days or five days? But what I've noticed over and over again, and I especially see this in anonymous types of posts, that when people use social media from a critical perspective, there's this unhindered rage that people are displaying towards others. Maybe that's how you view rage. Here's what I want you to hear, because before we talk about the rest of this passage, when Paul talks about the wrath of God, he's not talking about any of those things. The wrath of God is not uncontrolled rage. God is not blowing his top and just wiping people out. And I've heard people talk about this. Well, he's, in the Old Testament, God was just an angry God. In the New Testament, he's a loving God. That's not true. In the Old Testament, he was a God of justice and a God of love. In the New Testament, he's a God of justice and he's a God of love. But somehow we camp on the negativity and we ascribe that as an uncontrolled passion or a rage. And here's why this is, this is not the kind of wrath that we're talking about. The actual word that Paul uses here when he talks about the wrath of God, there's only two words that are used in the New Testament to describe wrath. One is the first one I talked about, this hot-tempered, you know, uh, gets-you-angry kind of a situation. That's not this word. Regarding the wrath of God, the word is actually orge, okay? And it means, this is what it means, listen... Punishment that is carried out as a result of long-building anger towards sin. So when we talk about the wrath of God, I'll say that again. It's not this uncontrolled rage. It's a punishment. It's a consequence that's carried out by God as a result of his long-building anger towards sin. I say that because it's important for us to understand God is not his posture towards you this morning is not folded arms and a mean scowl. His posture to you this morning is not his finger pointing at all of you, saying, shame on you. His posture isn't a clenched fist to you this morning. His posture is open arms, patiently waiting, patiently hoping and desiring all to come to him and not to oppose him. But God has his limits. And we see that through Scripture in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. A long-building anger towards sin. If we went back to the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, when God was speaking to Abraham, he was telling Abraham prophetically that Abraham would be the father of an entire nation. And he tells him this is going to happen. And then he says, in addition to you being the father of a nation, Abraham, you are going to leave that nation and you're going to be enslaved For 400 years, your people will be enslaved for 400 years. But then you will return back to your land. But you won't return back 
until something of significance happens. Look at verse 15 in Genesis 15. I have it for you. God says, you, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. Look, in the fourth generation, that's over 400 years, your descendants will come back here. And look what he says. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Every time I read that, I'm reminded of the fact that God is a patient God. He waited four hundred years before he put judgment and cast judgment on the Amorites who were not a godly people. People say, why did they wait in there? Why was Israel enslaved for over 400 years? What kind of God would enslave his people for 400 years? He enslaved them. He was with them during that time. But he said, when you come back into the land, it won't be until the Amorite sin has come to its full measure. Why? Because at that point, God's wrath would come across those people and the Israelites would inherit their land again. It shows the patience of a loving God. If we fast forward to the book of Jonah, some of you know the story of Jonah. He was a prophet, was asked by God to go to a city called Nineveh and to preach a message of repentance. And Nineveh was not a godly city. It was the capital of a really, really bad nation. And God said, I want you to go do this. And Jonah said, heck no. And he got on a boat and he traveled to the other side of the world. He went all the way to Tarshish, and in that time, Tarshish literally was the other side of the world. He ran as fast as he could, but when he got on the boat, God had other plans. A storm came. He ended up getting thrown overboard. He was swallowed by a large fish, the scriptures say. Uh, Jesus even talks about this in the Gospels. He spent three days in the belly of a fish. God speaks to him again when he's saved, and this time Jonah goes to Nineveh, and he preaches this message of repentance to the people of Nineveh, and they repent. And God doesn't punish them. End of story, right? Wrong. In chapter 4 of Jonah 1, chapter 4 of Jonah, this is how Jonah responds to God. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah was really honest. He was so angry that God was compassionate towards his enemies that he'd rather die than see them be blessed. I like Jonah because he's real. He's real, right? He's like, they're, they're horrible people. And God says, do you see my heart? And I'm telling you this this morning because in Romans, this is really important. People look at this passage in Romans 1 and they say, God is angry and he's going to curse you and he's going to do all this. And we have to take a step back and go, the wrath of God is not an uncontrolled rage. The wrath of God is one who sets back, creates an opportunity for you. And he patiently waits for you to respond. And he patiently waits for you to respond until he can wait no longer. And then there is a consequence and a judgment that comes. And we need to understand that about the person of God because his heart is not against you. His heart is for you. This is what Peter meant in 2 Peter 3.9 when he says to the people, when people were complaining, why isn't God coming? Maybe he forgot. Why isn't God, why isn't Jesus returning? What's going on with the Lord? Did he forget about us? And Peter says, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise. As some people think, no, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone 
to repent. This is the heart of God. The heart of God. God is not angry. He grows angry. In his patience, let's not look at this passage as an angry God. Let's look at him as a patient God where he waits until he needs to levy a judgment on a situation. Are you with me? This is so important for us to understand because it speaks to the true nature of who God is, that he's not just an angry, fist-clenched, finger-pointing God. Everything we talk about in this passage is rooted in God's long-building anger and the consequence for man doing their own thing. So that's the first thing we talk about regarding the wrath of God. The second principle I want to talk about starts in verse 20, and it's simply this. God has made himself known to all mankind. God has made himself known to all mankind. In verse 20, Paul writes, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. This is so powerful, you guys. Paul is making a statement here that is not just for Jews or for Christians. He's making a statement that applies to everyone who breathes in this world. Every human, past, present, and future. And what is he saying? There is a revelation that God has given to all mankind that we are able to see God's eternal power and his divine nature. This is called general revelation. Basically, if you could summarize it, what he's saying a little bit, he's saying, look around you. How can what you see around you tell you anything other than there is an intelligent designer, a God, a divine being who created all of it? How can you look at everything around you and not see his intricate design? Where did this come from? And man has done a great job of trying to tell us that this all came from nothing. That it all became organized from chaos just by happenstance over millions and millions and millions and millions of years. I can't even, I can't, it takes more faith for me to believe that than it does for me to believe in an intelligent designer and a divine being. You know how I know this? Because we're wired to think about a creator. When you walk into an incredible building, if you're thinking like me anyway, you might walk in and see all the architecture and see all of the beauty of that and everything around you, and your eyes might be wide open and say, this is incredible. And in the back of your mind, you might say, who made this? Who made this? You know, I've been spending the last month of my life uh, ripping apart a car in my garage for my daughter, and um, my wife told me a couple weeks ago, she said, you know, I came out into the garage, and there were just parts all over the place. And literally, there's parts all over the place. And, And I thought... She said, I thought she was going to say, and I was looking at all the parts, and I was going to think, wow, look how smart you are to do this. That's what I thought she was going to say. But she didn't say that. But she would have if I gave her time. No, this is what she said. This is what she said. She said, I looked at all the parts, and I thought, who are the people that have the intelligence and the understanding to create all of this so it all works together? We are wired, friends. We are wired to see creation and point to a creator, aren't we? We're wired, whether you're walking outside. The trees, the scriptures say, the heavens declare the glories of God. The heavens declare the glories of God. Every night I go outside, every night I look in the, on the sky, every night I look at the universe around me and the stars, and I just think, I'm nothing. I'm so small. This is what David said in Psalm 8 when he says, I consider the heavens 
the stars and the moon, you, you've hung all these in place. Who am I that you're mindful of me? You go out into all of creation and you can't see anything but the existence of a divine creator. I believe this with all of my heart and I know in my heart of hearts and I believe everyone believes this in their heart of hearts that they really can't believe that what we experience in this world simply came out of happenstance. Paul tells us God has made himself known to all mankind. So the individual that says, well, I've never walked through the doors of a church. The individual that says, I've never had a missionary come to me. The individual that says, no one ever showed me the Bible. Paul says that God can go to all of those people when they stand before him and say, what about my creation? What about everything I've made? What about every blessing you've had? What about every tree that you harvested fruit from? What about every sunrise and sunset that you observed? What about the moving of the tides? What about the, and the universe? And it goes on and on and on and on. What about everything that you have experienced? How does any of that not point to the, existing, uh, the existence of me? That's what Paul is saying here. All men in our hearts, because we're created by God in his image. Genesis 1.27, we're created in his image, which means we have in us the desire to know him and to know the purpose of life. And when we search and when we look, what we find is that we were created for a reason and he has made himself known to all mankind. That's verse 20. The next principle is this. Man chooses to be God instead of worshiping God. This is what Paul's saying. Here's where it starts to change. When he created us, scriptures say we were created to be in relationship with God, to obey God, to worship God, because God is the creator and we are the creation. That's what the scriptures say. But Paul says, here's where the problem comes into play. In verse 21, he says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. This is the human condition. He summarized what all of us at different times in our life struggle with. He summarized the temptation that Adam and Eve had in the garden with the serpent. God says, I'll surely die if I eat of the fruit. And the serpent says, you won't surely die. God knows that you're going to know the difference between good and evil, and you'll be just like him. What is he basically saying? He's saying the temptation that lures us away from God is to become God. Don't worship God. Make your gods and worship them. And that's exactly what we see in the human condition for all of our lives and all of history. And all through history you see when mankind makes a decision to say, I, there may be a creator or there may not be a creator, but he does not have any influence in my life. His standards, his truth, his absolutes don't apply to me. What matters to me is me. We take God out of the God seat and we put ourselves in the God seat. Now everything starts to go the wrong way. This is what we wrestle with and this is what's happening in our world. This isn't new to our country. This isn't new for over the last 10, 20, 40, 50 years, 100 years. This has been happening since all of creation. 
you go back to Exodus 32, you see when Israel came out of, Israel, came out of Egypt through the, into the promised land when they were in the wilderness, what did they do shortly after? Three months after ten plagues and walking through the Red Sea where the water piled up on each side. Three months later when they were at the base of Mount Sinai waiting for Moses to come down with the law, they made their own gods. And they said, we want to worship these gods. They're of gold. They're of jewels. They're of valuables. We want to take the things that we have created and we want to worship them because we want to be worshipped. We do not want to worship other things. The truth of the matter is God has created us to worship. Every one of us is created to worship. Bob Dylan wrote a song many years ago and it said, um, you got to serve somebody. Some of you know this song. You're dating yourself. If you know it, don't, don't raise your hand. It's okay. But his song is really true. He's saying you've got to serve somebody. And what he's saying is all of us have been created to serve. All of us have been created to worship something. And if we don't worship the eternal God, we're going to worship something that we think is important. And usually that begins with us. Man chooses to be God instead of worshiping God. If you listen to the rhetoric and the narrative that we are hearing in our country right now, and this is not new to our country, but it's increasing What you are hearing is moral truth. Absolute moral truth is no longer valid. What matters is your version of truth. What matters is how you feel about something. What matters is what you determine is right or wrong. This is what's happening in our country. It's happening across our world, but it's it's escalating right now. So much so that if you stand for something that you believe is outside of yourself... No, my truth is rooted in God. It's not rooted in what I believe. You are considered antiquated. You are considered old-fashioned. You are considered irrelevant, right? Am I, you hear me? I mean, am I making sense this morning? This is what we're hearing across this world. And we're saying, no, everything needs to be relevant. Everything needs to be moral. I had a conversation with someone a few weeks ago when they were talking about um, an organization in our, in our country uh, that, that promotes um, abortions. And I said, the issue that I have with something, they posted something, and I said, the biggest issue that I have, because they were, they were mourning the loss of, of a couple that lost one of their children, and they were really offering their condolences. And, and someone posted something and said, you know, that's kind of ironic that they would offer their condolences on the, the, the death of that child when they promote the death of other children. And, you know, the person got upset about it. The other person got upset, and they said, they don't do that. And I said, no, they pretty much tell you that life matters when you say it matters. That's the whole point of why people are upset with that. And they said no, and they copied and pasted the mission statement of the organization and sent it to me. And the mission statement basically said, and I'm paraphrasing it, that they support and believe that women have the ability to choose their own morality. And they're writing, and I'm paraphrasing, and I said, that's pretty much what they're saying. They're saying their practice is that morality is based on how you feel at that time. So they're not going to get out of the way. I mean, they're not going to tell you what to believe. They're going to say, we believe that you can make your own moral judgments on things. And if you think it's okay for you, then it's okay for you. What do we believe is okay for us today? Whose standards do we follow? Who do we worship? Who do I worship? Who do you worship? This is what we need to wrestle with today. The world is telling us that whatever you want to do is morally okay. And it doesn't matter if it's 
life or death. It doesn't matter if it's wealth or greed. It doesn't matter if it's prosperity. It doesn't matter if it's, if it's living the life for yourself, you know, the whole YOLO thing, you only live once kind of thing. Be selfish. Live for yourself. Do everything that you want. You only get one life to live. Just do whatever you want. You are your own boss. You're the God of your own life. That's the message we keep hearing people say. And that's not the message of Scripture. That's not the message of God. The message of God is I've created you to know me. I've created you to love me. I've created you a specific way. And the way that you are created to live, the healthy way you are created to live, is with my moral truths. But when God hears man continue to choose themselves over God, things begin to change. And that's our next point. The next principle, after man chooses to be God instead of worshiping God, is that God surrenders man to the consequences of their sin. This is where God surrenders. God's not powerless. You know, when we hear the word surrender, we think of the, the army that waves the white flag and says they've been defeated, they're, they're conquered, and they have to put their head down and just walk away saying, we have no ability, we have no power. It's not about questioning the power and the authority of God. This is the heart of God. When he says, if you continue to want things that are not me, at some point I let you have what you want. That's what God does. He says, as society, as individuals, if you continue to desire things that are not me, I'll continue to draw you. I'll continue to open. Um, I'll keep my arms open. I'll continue to bring opportunity and show you through my general revelation, through divine and specific revelation to those. I'll do all of those things. But if you continue to say, I want my own way, at some point I'm going to give it to you. And you might sit here and say, well, good. If I can get my own way, that's a good thing, right? No, that's a bad thing. Because our own way is not going to be a good thing for us in the long term. Make sense? It's not going to be good for it. It's not going to work out. When I choose my own way, my own way many times in my sinfulness is not going to result in the type of things God has for me is intended for me. What happens here, and this is so important, we see this through the rest of the scripture, what we begin to see when this happens, when God surrenders us to the consequences of our sin, is a downward spiral that builds upon itself. That the immorality that we begin to see, it maybe starts as one step away from God, but then it goes two steps away from God, three steps away from God. And what he begins to write about is a trend that we see for the next number of verses. Let me read that to you. Look what he says in verse 24. As a result of all those things we talked about, he says, God, look, gave them over. What does he do? He surrendered them. He gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who was forever praised. Amen. What's happening there? He's saying right out of the gate, if you're going to go your own way and God chooses to say, I'm going to turn you over, then your truth is going to be rooted in who you are. And whatever you think is good, you're going to go through. And can I tell you, the very first thing when we choose to abandon God and make ourselves the God, the very first thing that happens to us is immorality. And sexual immorality is super high on the list because our flesh is saying we are the God. And whatever our flesh wants, our flesh is going to get. It's not isolated to sexual immorality, but when our flesh starts to speak, whatever our flesh wants, our flesh is going to get. If it wants wealth and greed and money, it's going to want that. If it wants uh, sex and promiscuity, it's going to do that. If it, if it wants anything that the flesh wants, it's going to move in that direction. And that's the first step away from walking from the Lord. 
walking away from the Lord. And that's what Paul's saying. He says, the sinful desires of your heart lead to sexual impurity for the degrading of your bodies. That's the first step. It's a form of perversion. And as we walk away from God's truth, our natural inclination as our human bodies is going to be want, take everything that our body wants because there's a spiritual man and there's a fleshly man and whichever one we feed is the one that's going to win. And what we've said to this fleshly man is you win. So I'm going to feed you everything that you want. And when the flesh takes over, let me tell you, I don't know if you've been in any seasons in your life like that, but when you feed your flesh more than you feed your spirit... It is insatiable. It wants everything you can give it. How do I know that? Because every time you go through a season, I go through a a season of prayer and fasting, it screams at me. My body screams at me during fasting and prayer time when I fast to say, you need to serve me. And I tell my body, I don't serve you. I serve God. When my stomach becomes priority over relationship with God, then I'm going to lose in that situation. So I tell, as Jenison Franklin said many years ago, you tell King Stomach that he is not the king of your life. I think that's a great way to put it. So the flesh becomes the priority. We begin to justify all of our immoral behaviors. But now the trend continues, and in verse 26, it grows. Look what he says after that. And because of this, once you begin to enter into sexual immorality and perversions, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Now we're not just in sexual immoralities, we're in shameful lusts. And he says, even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for this error. Really hard scripture to digest. People listen to this and say, surely it doesn't mean when you think it means. How could you say that? We're talking about homosexuality. Listen, we're not just talking about homosexuality, you guys. This passage specifically addresses homosexual behavior, but the whole context is about immoral behavior. We've done a really good job as the Christian church of highlighting this thing and making this the end-all, be-all. Sexual morality is wrong. Homosexuality is homosexuality, and you can't do that. God makes it very clear that it is a perversion from his plan, and when we're practicing those types of things, we are not practicing God's truth we are choosing our own way, not his way. But let's not, mix any, let's not mix up anything because when you get to verse 29, you see that he adds a whole other level beyond that and he talks about this. Look what happens in verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God, look, gave them over to what? A depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. And look what he says in verse 29. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. Just to start, they're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Isn't it interesting in the progression of what we're seeing, God puts, Paul puts all of those things after the sexual perversions. We elevate the sexual perversions. Well, we can't do that. We're a Christian. That's wrong. But you know what? We're envious of other people. We're proud. We're boastful. I can feel arrogant sometimes. Why do I think that that's not as sinful as sexual immorality? That's what I mean. Immorality is one big bucket. And we need to stop, as the church of Jesus Christ, highlighting one specific sin and making a whole group of people in this world feel absolutely less than God wants them to feel. 
I'm not saying you can condone and approve a behavior, but I'm saying God weeps for everyone who functions and lives in an attitude of sin. Whether you're arrogant, boastful, greedy, a gossip, or you're walking in some type of sexual immorality or sexual impurity, he weeps for every one of us. And he doesn't look at you any less than he looks at the other person. He sees us all as people who need to hear, who need to be loved, who need to be drawn. And it's the church's responsibility to show that love to every single person. Regardless of the kind of sin that they're in. Regardless of the, never, of the kind of sin that they're in. I look back to over the last 12 years that I've been doing pastoral ministry and I look at the number of relationships and people that I have gone through premarital counseling for and I can tell you the percentage of people that are together and they're living together or being sexually active together was more than half of the people that I have counseled through premarital over the last 12 years. And the number continues to grow. And you know, in the beginning, I used to have this major struggle with that, saying like, I can't do this, God. I mean, they're not living in your way. I can't do this. Why can I do this? And I felt convicted in my heart to say I can't do that. God got a hold of me many times, and he says, it's not your responsibility to convict them of their sin. It's your responsibility to love them where they are, to speak to them with love and compassion and draw them as best that you can and trust that I will give you opportunities to speak truth into their life so that by walking alongside them, they can come closer to me because they see what Jesus looks like through your life. That's what God is speaking to us to do. But we're good at pointing fingers. We're good at shaking hands. I can tell you, of that 60 plus percent of people, I remember many times I get to some point during the time if God opens the door and the timing is right and I feel like they're open to it, I challenge every single one of those couples to abstain from sexual activity before they get married. And can I tell you, over half of them did it. Over half of them did it. Some, some, some did it a month before. A couple couples did it three months before, four months before. One couple went in separate bedrooms. They said, we're going to honor God when we're going to do this. We know that this is right. That never would have happened if we shook a fist at someone and we pointed a finger and we said, shame on you. I love Jesus, but you're going to go to hell. Silly. Silly. It takes effort for us to walk through this and to proclaim judgment on someone else is not what our responsibility is. We can speak truth. But God wants us as people to love others and to recognize that when I look at someone that is walking in sexual immorality, God looks at me and sees someone who struggles with anger. And he says, why are you any different than them? If I'm someone that's walking down the road and I see someone that has an alternative lifestyle or a child or a teenager who doesn't know if they're a boy or a girl anymore or what's going on and I want to put a judgment on these people or these parents, God might look at me and say, why is that any different than you? You're boastful and arrogant. A sin is a sin. And God wants us to approach them the way that he approaches us. But he gives us over to this. Is this happening in our world? You bet it is. Are we seeing the depravity grow? You bet it is, you guys. The CDC reported from 1999 to 2018, the United States suicide rate has increased 35%. In 20 years, the suicide rate has increased 35%. It's the second leading cause of death for ages 10 through 34. Gallup did a poll from May 2002 to 2020. And according to Gallup, 40% of Americans rated moral values in our country as poor in 2002. 49% rated moral values as poor currently. That's increased. According to Gallup, listen to this, staggering. In the last 20 years, in 2002 to the present, 44% believe abortion is morally acceptable today, which is up 2% from 20 years ago. 
51% believe doctor-assisted suicide is morally acceptable. That's up 3% from 49%. 72% believe sex between an unmarried man and woman is morally acceptable. That's up 19% in the last 20 years. 12% believe it's immoral. It's morally acceptable to clone humans. That's up 5%. 66% support stem cell research on human embryos. That's up 14%. 66% um, believe having a baby outside of marriage is okay. That's 21% up. 66% support gay or lesbian relationships. That's up 26%. 36% support pornography. That's up 6%. 38% support sex between teenagers, that's up 6%, and 70% support smoking marijuana, which is up 5% from 65%. Did anything go down during that time? I'm glad you asked. It did. Here are the two areas that went down. Here are the two areas that went down. Listen to this. 54% support buying and wearing clothing made from animal... 54% support buying and wearing clothing made from animal fur. That is now down 6%. 56% support medical testing on animals, and that's down 9%. You see what's happening here? Everything that says God is God is being replaced by man is God. And we're not worshiping the creator, we're worshiping the creation. And this is the trajectory that we are moving in. And it's dangerous. And we're continuing to move in this direction. Mankind and people around us are continuing to tell us that the absolute truth doesn't matter anymore. What matters is what you matter, what you want to matter. What matters is what truth says to you. What matters is how you live according to your standards. And it doesn't matter what somebody else thinks. What matters is how you feel about it. This is a dangerous place that we are in, and we are continuing to move, to move in this trajectory. The last thing I want to mention this morning, and it's not directly in this scripture, but it's through the book of Romans, and it's through the Gospels, and I need to add this because this is so important for all of us, and we're going to close right here. We're going to close. Romans 1, 16. Listen to this. God continues to offer, hang on. God continues to offer redemption through Jesus Christ. This is the fourth thing I want you to hear. God continues to offer redemption to all mankind through Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter where we start. It doesn't matter how far away that we've gone. I mean, it matters from a consequence perspective. What I want you to hear is that what Scripture tells us over and over again is that God continues to offer redemption to all mankind through Jesus Christ. Romans 1.16 from last week. Remember Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew then to the Gentile. Remember, the power of God is what transforms us. Paul says, I will stand with my head held high. I will stand strong. I will stand confident, not in myself, but in Jesus. Why? Because the power of the gospel is the only thing that can change our hearts. That's it. Jesus Christ is the only one that can change our hearts. In John three sixteen and 17, John said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? eternal life. And what is eternal life according to the book of John? Knowing God. Having a relationship with God now that continues for all eternity. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Hard words. Difficult requires a lot of time to meditate on these words. I believe, hard for me, 
the most important thing we can walk away from this, I think, is to recognize the character of God is not to condemn. The nature of God is not to condemn. The nature of God is to wait patiently in long suffering before his anger grows. But can I tell you, there is going to be a time where God judges each one of us. This world will be judged. In Philippians 2, Paul said, For every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we may think we know the truth now, but can I tell you, the great equalizer for all of us is when we breathe our last breath and we enter into the next life, that we're either with him or we're against him. You don't choose life or death this morning, guys. John said in the Gospels that those who decide to follow Christ receive life. For those that don't, the wrath of God remains on them. It doesn't say that we receive the wrath. It says the wrath of God remains on them, which means we are already headed towards judgment unless we receive Christ. And the message of the Gospel this morning is that God loved you so much. He loves us so much that he made a way, not just for you, not just for Americans, not just for white or black or Spanish or Asian. It doesn't matter. He loves every single person that he's created in his own image. And the opportunity is for all of us to leave our own moral understanding of truth and to follow Christ and to align ourselves to the truth of Christ. Because when we do that, life doesn't get Amazing. Let me get me wrong. It doesn't mean like there's a peace that God fills our heart with, but all the problems don't go away. If the problems go away, I, I'm in trouble. But there's a different way that we address problems. There's a different way we handle struggles. We don't do it on our own strength. We do it by grabbing a hold of Jesus and saying, I need you. I need you now. I need you tomorrow. I need you next week. I need you when I'm going through struggles. Pastor Matt said when we started this morning, this is a season that we're going through that's a really difficult time for many people. We can try to figure it out on our own strength or we can get on our knees and just say, I don't understand and I don't want to worship myself. I just want to worship you. And I need you. God, give me strength. Encourage me. Give me peace. I'm going to follow you and my life's not going to be perfect, but I'm going to trust you through it all and I can be confident to know that you will never let me out of your hand. And that is a message that everyone in this world can hear and everyone in this world can receive because God is no respecter of persons. Amen. Would you take a moment and bow your head? The worship team's going to close with this song. And I just want to ask as I just get ready to close and I just want to bow, bow your heads and let me just ask a few questions for you this morning. I want to ask you first, do you have a relationship with Christ? If you're listening this morning, do you have a relationship with Christ? If you do, then you already know what it means by following Jesus to begin a life where God becomes your priority and you worship him and not yourself. But let's, let's not be ignorant about things. There's a, there's a tension that still happens in this life that we wrestle with. Paul talks about it in Romans 7. We'll get there eventually. We can struggle. We can wrestle with these things. Let's never put our confidence and our trust in God. And can I tell you, the worst thing that any of us can do is to point a finger at God because of circumstances that we're in. God's not the one that does it to us, friends. The brokenness of this world does it to us. If you're wrestling with sin or depravity, if you're wrestling with any of the things that are mentioned, can I just tell you first, just know this. 
you don't have to do the first one to qualify for the second one or the third one. The whole point of what he's saying is the society and the culture that we live in, as it continues to walk away from God, exposes us to more and more depravity, and we become victims of those things. The solution to that is not to try harder. The solution to that is to give Christ all that we have. Give our hearts to him and let him transform us. So if you know Christ, spend some time and just acknowledge that this morning and worship with us this morning. If you're here and you have no relationship with Jesus, you've never trusted in him as your Lord and Savior, can I tell you, it goes so much more beyond just a little scripted prayer. Saying a prayer of, you know, Jesus, come into my life, cleanse me of my sin, amen. It goes so much more than that. Jesus said, or Paul said in Romans 10 verse 9, if you will confess with your heart Jesus is Lord, you know what a Lord is? He's your master and you're the slave. If you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So what is he saying? Put your faith in the, in the word of Christ. Put your faith in the work that he has done and submit your life to his. And you shall be, you shall be saved. Father, I just pray this morning that our hearts would be open to you that we would hear these words and our hearts would be drawn to you. Lord, we wouldn't feel condemnation. We would feel the love of Christ as we walk in relationship with you. God, we need you today and we need you every day. In Jesus' name we pray.